This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. At one point or another, every architecture student or graduate has a portfolio of their work that they have agonized over creating. Portfolios are important. They demonstrate your range of skills and will most likely play a significant role in whether or not you land that dream job. So why do most of them suck? Today, we're gonna talk about the perfect portfolio and what that actually means. Today's episode is brought to you from longtime supporter of the show, Peterson. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are talking about portfolios, a topic that, depending on the time of year, represents maybe 15 to 20% of all the emails I receive. People have questions, and today, Andrew, we're going to answer them. Nice. That's a lot of emails. It is a lot of emails, you know, and it's actually why I think I have about five or six blog posts on my site that are dedicated to portfolios. Yeah. And each one of them is the manifestation of answering the same question like a hundred times. Yeah. yeah. Finally, you're like, I can't, you know, they're because they're long. They're, they're not easy questions. And I think the last one I wrote, and I'll definitely be referring to this one a lot because it was like the most extensive post I wrote actually about portfolios had to do with, I used Daniel Anderson, a young woman who worked in my last office and I got her to come over to my new office. Her portfolio was one of the very best I've ever seen. I mean, it hit every single sweet spot. Nice. And so I use that as the example to say, this is what matters. This is what we look at. These are the things you may not know. Mm-hmm. So I thought it's that time of year. It's early in the year. That's kind of key to this because whether or not we get into it is there's these periods of the year where portfolios start to be thought about. Yeah. You know, it's not just mad scramble because you need it because you're graduating in a week. At least I hope that's not what's happening. <laughs> yeah, if it is, there's bigger <laughs> problems. You got other things. I didn't even wait that long and I'm king of procrastination. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I started mine over the Christmas break before I graduated. So I had about five months before I started. Although I have to say, I think probably you and I were maybe different. We had to craft ours by hand. Yes. At least I know my first one was completely by hand. Oh, yeah. I'm cutting photos and gluing them on black matte paper and, you know, all yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. You know, it's funny. The first portfolio I really worked on. I did a summer job working for an architect here in Dallas and the space that he sublet, the owner of the building was a professional photographer. So there were four bays. One bay was like, he would rent them out to photographers for like day offices. Mm -hmm. The middle two bays were like just huge wide open shooting studio because he shot cars. There was a professional kitchen because he did food shots, the whole kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I helped him go do a shoot in exchange for him shooting my models for me. So we were able to like roll down the big mat and set them on things, real camera to shoot it. I mean, I paid with a pound of flesh and a gallon of sweat because that was back in the day where I'm like raking carpet and I'm trying to like back (laughs) my way out of a room and jumping on furniture. So I don't leave footprints and all this. Yeah. To make sure everything's like perfect in the photo. Yeah. And I'm like taping lenses, pieces of plastic over certain light fixtures so that the color gets corrected because there was no Photoshop. Yeah. There's no glare and it's all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 You you had like one (laughs) shot to get it right. Yeah. So anyway, let's just jump into it. And 
for those who may not know because they're young or maybe they're not in the industry and they don't understand, a portfolio, and let's just talk about what it is. Well, how I would describe it is a portfolio is really just a collection of your work that demonstrates your proficiency in various skills in the trade that demonstrate how you think and process information. That's the shortest definition I can think of about what it is. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's pretty good. It's almost like a gallery of your skills. Yeah. Well, you're trying to demonstrate what you can do. Yeah. It's kind of everything. It's photos, it's drawings, it's models, it's design. It might even be writing to a certain extent. But I will tell you the one thing that gets on me more than anything else is that I think 95% of all people that make portfolios, at least for the first one they make, don't really understand how people like me review them. What are we looking yeah. at? When we decided to name this the perfect portfolio, really the goal that can be extracted from this show, I think, is to understand how they're really reviewed for someone who hasn't gone through the process yet. Because they might be thinking, oh, that butterfly pavilion building I did, it was amazing. I'm going to put it in there. And you know, the truth is maybe it shouldn't go in there because what you're trying to show is not that you can design an amazing butterfly pavilion because guess what? I've never designed a butterfly pavilion professionally, right? It's not like I need to find someone who can design a butterfly pavilion. Yeah. What I need is I'm looking at drawings. I'm looking at how did you communicate graphically? How did you solve the problem visually? But more importantly, how did you demonstrate that information on a piece of paper within this book? Yeah. And to me or to the reviewer. Yeah. I was going to say the other thing when this episode comes out, the good timing about this will be that also it's just, this is still relevant information for students that are trying to get into grad school because you'll have to turn those in yeah. December, January. So this is another good time frame. I think this is coming out in October sometimes. It's still similar things that these people are looking for just because we know it. Yeah. Well, I have it written down. I have three bullet points here and it's like, it says, what is its role and why do you make them? Well, the easiest one was to get a job. Mm-hmm. You want to get a job, you need to show people what you're capable of doing. You got to make a portfolio. But if I take a step back one, for me, the first portfolio I made and the role that it played was to show enough proficiency in my design ability to actually allow me to progress onto upper level design studios within my school. Yeah. Our process was we had a sound building semester and what we were supposed to do at the end of that semester, we pinned this work for this one semester on the wall. But then we had to build a portfolio that showed all the work that we had done. When I say all, I don't mean every project, but was a representation of the work that we'd done up to that point. And then they had professors come by and review it and grade it and mark it up. And they said, yes, you can advance on to upper level studios. Or they'll say, you need more drawing work or you need more three-dimensional thinking work. Or they can actually send you back a semester yeah. to go yeah. either take a class again or to get supplemental work in other topics. Yeah, we have a similar process. For you, was that your third year from three to four? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, see, and for us, it's two to three. So I think it's a little bit harder. It's your second year, but we evaluate. It's harder for the professors because there's less work for them to review. Well, it's less work for you and you're not as far along, right? But there's still a baseline of understanding that we know you need to have. It's a similar process. Well, the other one I had, which you'd already mentioned, and it was for you to get into a graduate program. Yeah. They want to see what you've done in your undergraduate degree. Which actually is one of the questions I get a lot. And quite honestly, I don't really have a good answer for it because I don't think there is a canned answer for it. And it's, let's say that you come out of your undergraduate degree with a Bachelor of Science in 18th century romantic poetry, but you want to be an architect. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you have to apply to a graduate school and that graduate school has a portfolio requirement as part of their submission. Yeah. And people will say, I mean, like, what do I put in that kind of thing? And I tried answering that like straight up legit a few times, but the differences between universities vary so wildly. My advice now is just, you need to contact that university and ask them what they want to see from you. <laughs> they probably I mean, won't tell you though. They probably won't. Actually, the last two years, I've reviewed career change is what we call it. Career change portfolios for graduate students at the university. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about architecture. Some people trying to come in have some history with that. Some don't. But I think it's really, again, about showing your A, creativity, and then B, that you have some interest or understanding of design, whatever that may be. I mean, it could be graphic design. It could be craft work. It could be anything. But that there's some element of your person, of your being, right, that has this interest in design and how are you currently investigating that? I can think of some where people like did woodwork. I mean, this guy had all these cabinets and furniture and the stuff that he had built. So, I mean, he's got this yeah. interest in making things. And so I think that's really for the career change. It's just about showing that you have some interest in creativity and how you currently manifest that or investigate those things. Photography is always good. We had a young woman once who sent in her portfolio and she had rebuilt a classic car. I can't remember what kind of car it was, but what we learned about her her attention to detail and the methodical process that she had to go through in the yeah. act of restoring this car. Yeah. I go, that worked. That told us something about her. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. in these career change people, I know it's really, you're trying to tell a story just like someone who's actually going from a four year to get their two year master or someone who's just going from entry level studios to advanced level studios. The objective is still the same. And we'll get into a bunch of these, but it doesn't have to be about architecture, right? Yeah. Just telling a story. Yeah. And you're having to curate that. And part of what's being evaluated is how you curate the story. So how you choose to tell that story, that's really the design exercise. And that's what people don't understand. Your portfolio is another design project. Yes. And quite honestly. 100%. Yeah. And people don't really think of that. They just think of it as like a, a volume of greatest hits from what you've already done. So we've talked a little bit about okay, like what a portfolio is. We talked about what its role is. And I could say that we've kind of talked a little bit about why it's important because it's about showing that you have certain skills, your proficiency in software and drawing and model making or whatever. Those things are on display. And in those cases, it tells people like you and me, people who actually review portfolios as part of our job, like when I hire people. Yeah. It tells me a lot about that person. But what we haven't talked about yet, before we actually get into the actual step-by-step -step process of creating the perfect portfolio, is what's the lifespan of your portfolio? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I think it's three years max. Max. Probably. That's what I would think. You know? Also, you get to a certain point in your career, you don't really need one. There you go. Yeah, that's like a three years max because you know what happens? If you've been out of school for five years and you're coming into a job interview with me, and you're showing me the stuff you've done in college, I'm going to go, well, have you been in prison? Well, I mean, what, are you, what have you been <laughs> yeah, doing? Have you been on sabbatical from work? Yeah. You've just been Which touring happens. the world? Yeah. I mean, there are times when people go, well, I've been a barista. And then you feel like a jerk because you're trying to be clever about, you've been in prison? They're like, well, yeah, I have actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, what have you been doing in prison? Yeah. So, so I do think that there's some reason why it might go beyond because if you get a job and it doesn't demonstrate it's kind of like dress for the job you want. Your folio should represent the job and the work that you want to do. 
So if you got a job and the climate wasn't great and you just like, I need a job. So you took a job and it's like you hated it and they have you do stuff that is not really where your long-term interests are. You need to bring what you're doing to your job interview, but then you can supplement that with your portfolio. So even when I say that the portfolio has a three-year lifespan, like the first time you use it, it'll be a hundred cent portfolio. The second time you use it, it'll be like 70% portfolio and 30% what you're doing now. The further you get away from the actual creation of that portfolio and its genesis, like in mm-hmm. college, yeah, the less and less you need to rely on it. And I can tell you that after about three or four years, my portfolio never saw the light of day again. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think that's fairly common. If you end up in this situation, because I know, I mean, especially like right now, it's not easy to find a job in the field of architecture. If you end up with a job that you don't like, still spend some time, if you can, pursuing some of those other creative interests so that maybe you can include those things in this updated portfolio. If it's two years out and you're doing something you don't really like and that work doesn't really present the things that you're interested in. Yeah. Tell a story about your side hustle. Yeah. Because that has to do with like, say, take the podcast, but originally the blog site. That was a creative outlet. I mean, that's why I did it. Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to create something. So I did it. Had I been younger when I started that exercise, you can be assured that I would have used that as part of my interview material. And that's like, what have you been doing? Well, work's been slow. So this is what I've been spending my free time on. These are the skill sets I've been trying to develop. These are the talents and stuff that I've been able to hone. And mm-hmm. I guarantee you, if, if I'd been on the other side of the table and somebody showed me that, that would resonate. Yeah. It would show a level of commitment and it would be impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be an architecture blog. It could be, I like cooking, right? Yeah. So I started a cooking blog site where I recreate Julie Child recipes. It could be the Restoring Classic Cars blog. Yeah. So let's get into the actual step-by-step what this actually means. All right. Okay. Because it is fairly formulaic, and I don't think that if anyone tells you that you got to really go off reservation to make a portfolio that resonates and like leaves an impression, baloney. <laughs> Just doing it good. That's yeah. what resonates. Right? I think so. I mean, at the end of the last school semester, I went to career fairs at four Division One schools. Oh, yeah. I probably saw over a four-day window, 200 portfolios mm-hmm. and maybe seven I went, wow, like this is amazing. And all seven of those people got callbacks from me. The good ones, they stand out. Most of them are mediocre at best. But then there's some that you go, this is really done. And I think those people have figured out the purpose of what that portfolio is supposed to do. And that's why they're so good, in my opinion, obviously. So let's talk about what that is. So the key to having a successful portfolio is to think about how it will be viewed, what messages you're sending based on the content you are providing. And then you need to consider how much time somebody like me or Andrew is going to be looking at your portfolio. I don't want a 300 page portfolio. You know what that tells me? You can't curate. You can't like. You got no internal filter. Yes. I learned something by how much information you send me. Yeah. I think that you should be able to do an extremely good portfolio in less than 50 pages. Oh, yeah. That's when there's a lot of white space because that's the other thing that I look at is you need to craft every image on the page. And what I mean by that is there's got to be a balance between white space and the image. You don't want to have one image and go, well, they only want it to be a certain number of pages, so they put 10 images on one page. That's not good either. Yeah. And I can promise you that the amount of time that I look at your portfolio 
won't be a tenth as long as you think it will be. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it'll be one one hundredth of the time you spent making it, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that person will spend weeks, possibly even months, agonizing over every little detail and trying to skillfully articulate diagrams and plans and perspectives and collages and like all that stuff. And I won't look at it for more than half a second. You know, (laughs) that doesn't mean that I don't love it, but people who create these things, I'm not evaluating your design work of that design. I'm evaluating how you communicate that design to me within the parameters of your portfolio. So I mean, don't show me every document that you made for this project. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you also got to think about it as a, is there some way to hook me into wanting to do a little bit more? Initially, I do this cursory flip through. I think I might be more than half a second, but... That's hyperbole, for I know. sure. It's no. no more than a minute and 10 seconds to just flip through and look through that stuff. And if there's something there to interest me, then maybe I'll read the text that's associated with that. But for the most part, I'm only using that as a way to gauge your ability to present the information to me, not necessarily what the information is. That's right. You're trying to see how their brain works and how they process information and how they articulate that information. I don't actually need to read the words. The other thing is when I look at portfolios, I normally don't start with page one and go to page two and go to page three. I'm left-handed. I tend to pick them up and I flip them backwards. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to get a vibe. I'm trying to get a feel for it. And so when I just flip through the pages really quick, I'm not reading dimensions. I'm not reading the storyline. I'm not reading the bio that your professor gave you when he assigned you this project. I don't need to know that. Yeah. I don't need to know about this watershed development project that you're working on in downtown New Orleans. That's not the information that's important to me. How do you tell me that story with me just looking at the graphics of it? And it's not even bad, actually, if you don't put all the text on there, because then say you get to get in the room with someone like me, I'm going to ask questions. It's another Mm -hmm. opportunity for me to say, why is this important? You include this here and I can see how it's related to that. You'd be amazed. People that read drawings for a living and they've been doing it for 20 plus years, we get good at reading drawings and putting them together pretty quick. Yeah. Much faster than the fourth year student who is putting together this portfolio. Yeah. And it also doesn't matter what the size of that image is, right? <laughs> if it's, even if it's a small little image on the page and it's your plan, yeah. we can evaluate it in yeah 0.5 seconds and understand it. We see it pretty quick. Yeah. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are sitting here today with Tom Bell, Vice President at Peterson. Tom Bell's entire 40-plus year career has been in the metals industry with the past 22 years with Peterson managing its architectural metals business. So, hi, Tom. Hello. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. A lot of our listeners are very familiar with Peterson, the company, and very familiar with PackClad as a product. But can we talk a little bit just about Peterson, the company? Absolutely. Peterson is on the move in so many different ways right now, not only an expansion in territory, but also in product line. We've taken a company that's 55 years old and moved off the roof down to the walls in uh, substrates of both aluminum and steel. And those have become very, very important as we cover from coast to coast in different environments and atmospheres. I know that Peterson makes both hidden fastener and exposed fastener wall cladding panels. 
but they make that for both exterior and interior use. That's correct. We've gotten more interest in that industrial exposed fastener look in restaurants, homes, museums. So that has actually been a market that has kind of opened up to us without us even knowing it was there. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's always nice, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I know that I've always been particularly fond of, Peterson, Pat Clad as a metal cladding product, is the number of standard colors and the custom color capabilities. That's correct. We've continued to add to that palette as we've grown uh, again across the country with 38 to 44 now standard colors. We found that what's popular in Florida may not be the same in Arizona, and those color charts have just had to expand. Sure. We are now looking into print coats that uh, used to be exotics that are now standards on our floor, that being uh, whether it's a metallic brushed look or even a wood grain and those are now on our floor uh, ready to ship wow that's amazing the wood grain is interesting to me (laughs) it is interesting one of the things that uh, andrew and i because we've actually talked about pack clad as a product on the show before Mm -hmm. we like the perforated metal it's one of the products that there's been a lot of interest i'm sure that you're familiar with the growing interest that happens it's not you probably have metrics i guess is what i'm saying i just see it being used more often Will you talk about the perforated metal products a little bit for us? Absolutely. It's a product that for so many years was used in sound deafening and other areas. And then all of a sudden, someone got very creative and figured out that perforations in so many different patterns and availabilities is exactly what they were looking for in both a cladding application and a screen, uh, sunscreen application. And uh, it's, it's just continued to grow. We have numerous projects going right now, especially on parking decks where some type of cladding is used on the siding, but ventilation is just as important as anything else. So that has become uh, something of great interest to many architects in the institutional side of our business. So do you have multiple patterns and uh you know what kind of perf panels yeah you it's just uh, you dream away uh the perforators that have been perforating metal for industrial ruses all these years have just opened up the gates and we have diamonds to squares to really uh, uh we have a casino out here that actually has a shape of the money like the dollar sign uh, yeah the dollar sign <laughs> is actually perforated into the metal i know that there's a variety of standing seam metal panels but this is a product that you can actually get for both commercial and residential applications. And it's capable of being warrantied. You have a really good warranty, do you not? Yes, we do. And and the residential side of the business is probably a, uh, the fastest uh, growing part of our roofing product. We're uh, now in the, with our Phoenix facility uh, expanding all along the West Coast. And uh, our aluminum uh, roof product has all of a sudden uh, gr- had great interest from Seattle all the way to San Diego. And that's in their residential side. Our Florida market and Caribbean markets are our strongest markets in the U.S. right now. And again, I would say 20 to 30 percent of our total market there now is also residential. Well, that's wonderful. Well, if you'd like to inquire more about the perforated metal or Peterson's metal roof and wall cladding products, send an email at info at pac-clad.com. So that's info at pac-clad.com. And we'll put a link at the bottom of today's post so that 
you don't have to remember this and write this down. You can just click it and it'll take you right where you need to be. Tom, we appreciate you taking time to visit us today. Thanks for having us. Oh, it was our pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much. So curating the content is another really, really big consideration that I think more times than not is a misstep in the creation of someone's portfolio. Mm -hmm. Think of it at multiple levels. So one is curating the content. Well, I don't need to see every project you've ever done during your time in school. Yeah. You want to pick out like the very best ones. And ideally it's not bad to show, wow, I was terrible in my first year studio and I was amazing in my fifth year studio. So I'll show more of my fifth year projects and less of my first year. I learned something from showing how it evolved, how you went as a first year student, what your work looked like and how it progressed through the different semesters. I can see how your growth is. I can see how your brain started to change. I can see how you start to process information differently and how your communication, that tells me something that has value. So when you're thinking only show like the really good and the most latest stuff, if you have 10 projects and you're going, well, I'm going to show five, don't just show me the last five, you know, spread it out. There's some, there's good stuff to be gained from you showing how you've evolved from beginning to this moment in time. Yeah. To me, what I always call that is quality over quantity. Yeah. And the way that I look at that is it's a, this element of me being able to know that you can self-evaluate. You can't critically evaluate your own work because you decided it's all worthy of presentation when it's not. It's not going to be, nobody has 100% of the work that is worth putting in the portfolio. And so to me, that's the issue. Being critical of yourself and realizing that not everything that you've done should be in there. I do agree somewhat maybe with the notion of showing growth, but at the same time, it just depends. If those first year projects and images are just terrible, don't use them. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I want to see that kind of growth from garbage to awesome, right? Just show me awesome. That may be where we're a little bit different in that regard. I don't need to see a lot of garbage. <laughs> like one, like... Yeah, if there's like one image or something, right? Sure. Yeah. I, I can and you do know, that. it doesn't even have to be... We actually have this a bullet point that I wrote down later to talk about and has to do like things you show that aren't just buildings. It could be a drawing you did as a freshman versus a similar drawing that you did as a graduating senior, right? Just like how much better did your drawing style get? How much better did your graphics get? How did your visual communication skills evolve? It doesn't have to be, here's my moon habitat as a freshman (laughs) and here's my moon habitat as a senior. Yeah. And look how bad it was and how good it is. Yeah. I don't necessarily need it that way. And it doesn't have to be a building. Like I said, it could be, it could be anything, but it should show some sort of evolution. I think there's value to that. Right. I agree. But I mean, I also think this idea of self-evaluation is really critical. Yes. Well, actually, I think I said it on a post when I was reviewing one of your projects, not your project, one of your students' projects, (laughs) you know? Yeah. yeah. And it was, if you put it on the wall, it's fair game. Yeah. Right. If you put it in your portfolio, it's fair game for me to evaluate it either as a, like, see how much you've grown or how much you haven't grown. Did you do a good job with this? Did you not do a good job with this? So self-editing and curating to tell the story you want to tell to demonstrate the skills that would lead you to get the job that you think you want. That's part of what that means. Yeah. And I'd also say that I wrote in a blog post once that I think I spent about five seconds on a page, at least on my initial review. Because if I'm looking at 50 of these, guess what? I'm not going to spend 15 minutes on each one. I don't have enough hours in the day to do that. Mm -hmm. So if I spend five seconds on a page, what I'm getting from those very quick glances is I'm looking to see how your information is laid out on the page, 
I'm looking at the balance of like positive and negative space. I'm looking at the balance of white space versus the content that you put on there. Because I've had students where they'll give me one sheet and it's kind of like, this is what they learned to do. Their professor said, you got three 24 by 36 boards. So they will craft one page that has plans and sections and notes and text and di- you know what? I don't need all that. Yeah. Just give me one image, make it a beautifully delineated plan. And maybe you have like two or three or four images marching across the bottom or something else that supports the content. I don't need all of it. That's a big part of the curating your content. Know what to include, but I say air by overly reducing what you're demonstrating yeah. than over showing. Yeah. I would rather have a 10 page portfolio than a hundred page portfolio, no matter what. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a hundred pages, the most awesome stuff I've ever seen. I would still rather have a 10 pager. My note is we're not hiring at this time, but you should turn this into a book <laughs> if it's a hundred pages. Okay. The next topic for discussion was letting your images tell the story. And it has to do with that. You should consider how much text you decide to include in your portfolio. Cause I can tell you the chances of me reading the text is very, very, very low. I'll read labels and I might skim a couple of the words that you put in there. I'm not critiquing your project. I'm critiquing your portfolio. Portfolio is the project I'm critiquing, not the individual design that you did four years ago in second year design studio. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm doing. I was going to say, I might read the titles or the headers of some, like if you have a little paragraph describing it, I might read what the title of that paragraph is. It is this lunar pod project. I might read that much of it, but I'm not going to read all the stuff under it. Yeah. Enough to give me the context of what I'm looking at, but I'm not diving into the deep parts for sure. Yeah. If you're including paragraphs of information, (laughs) it either graphically, it's going to look bad because you're going to have to make it big enough on the page to where when it gets printed, the pixelation of it still makes it legible. Well, we'll get to that later because it could be done digitally and that's not so much of an issue, but that's a consideration. I'll tell you, I might be good for a paragraph. And that's only after I've looked at the image and it piqued my curiosity. Probably only after I've looked at the whole portfolio and gone back and said, okay, this one seems the most interesting. Maybe I'll read about it so we can talk about it. Yeah. I think the default that you should put in the back of your head is that it should be image driven. And then if you need to put some supplemental labels on it, maybe the occasional paragraph, then you can do that. But it should not be you explaining your project as you work through all the documentation that you're including. Oh, no. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's just not, don't do no. that. It's not necessary. No, I'm meaning like, typically I might see a single paragraph per project that just sort of explains, summarizes the project. Yeah. But I don't want a paragraph for every image. Oh, good Lord, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think if I have more than like, I don't know, five to 10 sentences on a page, it's a foul. Right, because even then, even if I'm interested, I'm probably not going to read that much. No, 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 I I agree, I agree. The bandwidth, I just can't. So let's talk about demonstrating graphic fluency and what that could possibly mean. Because it meant something vastly different when I was in school versus what it means now. And one of the things that I've noticed in younger people is when all their documentation is created using three-dimensional modeling programs, you can cut as many sections and elevations and I mean, yeah. production is simple or simpler. How about yes. that? Yeah. So that curating process that we had to go through as, you know, cavemen <laughs> back when we were yeah. in school, I had to draw it 
every bit of it. So I thought through, mm -hmm. do I need this? Is it going to help tell my story? Like mm -hmm. I can only draw five drawings. So I need to make sure that they're the best five I can do as opposed to, I just model all of it. And then I just go section, 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 elevation, elevation. And I just start slicing it up like a loaf of bread. Yes. I see that a lot. I see that way more now than I saw five years ago and profoundly more than I saw 10 years ago. Yeah. But the other thing that I would say is when I say demonstrate your graphic fluency, it also has to do with how do your drawings just look? Are they crisp? Does their pen weight? Is there shading? Is there color? Is it used appropriately? Does it help me understand the drawing I'm looking at? Does it not actually help me understand the drawing I'm looking at? These are big things to me. I think everybody who's spent even a small amount of time on my website knows that I read a lot into a drawing when somebody puts pen weight to it. That tells me that they understand certain things and it's not just the output of a computer program. Pen weight's a big deal to me. I look for yeah. it. To me, under this idea of graphic fluency, it's also graphic design fluency. And I don't know if this overlaps with the previous or where it belongs, but I think that even though we're talking about your portfolio as a design process, a design project, you can essentially over-design it or make things too complicated or too complex. One of my big pet peeves in this area is, I have, actually have a couple. <laughs> <laughs> One is when you think it's really cool because maybe you see it in a magazine or maybe it's just something you've done in the past where you have your text that's overlaid on an image and it could be the project name, it could be something else, but it's not legible, right? It detracts from what's happening. That's one thing I see more often that I can't stand. Have an image and have text. They don't necessarily need to overlap. Yeah. I don't like that, but that's just me personally. And really, I should say, if it's done well, it's great, but it's very hard to do well. And I don't know that any architecture student has that ability. Graphic designers do because that's their job. But 99.5% of architecture students don't have that skill. Then the other thing for me that's always pet peeve is spreading the gutter. How Having a drawing that goes over it. And oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I just want to lose my mind when that happens. It's somewhat okay for an image, possibly, if the image is big enough, but never, ever, 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 ever for a drawing. Because you just lose too much. You just lose too much in that part of the portfolio. Even if it's digital, it still doesn't work. That's a sacred gap in the middle of, of your portfolio, right? Just don't do it. Just don't leave it be. Like resist the urge to do the two page wide graphic. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Uh. But the thing is that what people like us who review these, what we learn from that is you go, well, you didn't solve the problem. The problem is this is a communication tool. And if I've got a chunk down the swath here that is either hard or legible or it rolls into the binding, these are all things I go, they didn't think about it. This is the design challenge mm -hmm. for your portfolio is to think about the pages, the book, how it's laid out. Like, let's say that you go, well, it's the very last thing on this list is like, is it on paper? Is it digital? Then you start thinking, well, when you design it, are you designing it for a portrait or for landscape? There's things that you can think about. You have to make decisions early on that will have an impact on how you lay out your portfolio. Sure. You need to think that through because that's the problem. Definitely. So one of the things when I talk about consistent in graphics and consistent in the layout is I want it all to have like a similar vibe to it. If you're going to do full bleed, do full bleed everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. 
Like, I think that you almost need to design how you're going to lay out your page before you put any content on it, yeah. right? You're not designing each page like it's its own standalone birthday cake. No. You need to design the page template and then you need to populate that template with yeah. your content. Yes. Yeah. And you know what else that means? Don't use more than like two fonts. Oh, yeah. I would say just use one. <laughs> just use one. Right. But two yes. is okay. You might get away with it. Well, the reason why I say two is I go, well, you know, somebody might want to use one for labels for like, yeah, like one titles. for headers and titles and all that kind of stuff yeah. and one for other text, which is okay. But the thing that makes it really hard is you're like, well, I didn't use, I used Comic Sans as a freshman because I didn't know better. And now obviously I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I use Helvetica, right? You know, it's, <laughs> you know, so there's a reason why it's different. But go back and fix it. Go back and fix it. I mean, in this day and age, because it's all digital, go back and fix it. Yeah, which actually, I don't have that on this list, which is something that's been sitting in the back of my brain, is how much of what you have are you okay with people going back and redoing? Like, obviously, they're not going to tell you, but I know that I'd say, I don't know, maybe it was six or seven months ago, I sat next to a woman in my office who was in between her undergraduate degree and she was leaving to go to school this fall mm -hmm. for master's. Yeah. And she was working on the portfolio that she's going to submit as part of her application for graduate school. She was reworking a bunch of projects. She was redoing projects like across the board. Yeah. And part of me goes, I'm not really sure that's the point. Right. I mean, part of it, I go, I get some of it that you want some consistency, but you can't redesign your projects. That defeats the goal. But then I went, the goal is to get a job. So maybe it's not. Yeah. You know? The goal is to get in. I think it just depends. You and I are never going to know if they redid the work. I mean, I think in some instances, yes, it's important. My preference is less about redoing the design than redoing the presentation of that design. I think that that is 100% acceptable yes. and probably should be done. And I agree with you, but that's why I said early on that I like to see projects from the beginning because I can look and see an evolution. Yeah. If you go back and redo your projects and I look and I see like there's no difference between your first year project and your fourth year project, that's a red flag. I go like, probably going to know you're, you've lied somewhere in there. Either you didn't get any better or you went back and redid all these. Right. Again, yeah, I can see that. But if it's something as simple as changing the fonts or yes, if you're going to do something as like your layout starts to be like one project in black and white, one project in color, and you want to flip those around because that's how you want to make it work. I think that's fine. Going back and redoing completely your freshman project. Yeah, no. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm like you. We'll be able to kind of figure that out. You might think that we won't, but it's not that difficult to. I'd even say if it got past me, you know, hey, good on you. Right. I bet that it's not that unusual. Like if you do 10 things, I'm probably not going to catch half of them. You don't want me to catch any of them. It's the point. Agreed. If I catch one and you're like, haha, but you didn't catch the other 19 that I did. And I go, well, it's still foul. You I know? still caught one. Yeah. Yeah. I still caught the one. The other thing I would say is my advice to anyone in putting together a portfolio is to use InDesign. Adobe InDesign is your portfolio designing software. And in that, first things that you're going to do is set up your master layout pages and figure out, set up a grid, set up some sort of system that your portfolio is going to maintain throughout the entire run, all the pages. 
that doesn't mean there can't be in variations in the way that that gets populated, but that there is a baseline of a grid layout and everything that happens, right? then I can populate. You mentioned that a little bit about designing the layout first. And I think that that's a critical step, I think, that gets lost or that, that never really happens. And not enough people spend the time to say, this is how I'm going to lay it out. In one instance, I can span across these three boxes and make one image. And other times I can use two of those. The other time they can be all three, whatever it is, but that there is a graphically gridded layout that you have so that there is some continuity and consistency in what you're putting down on the page. Sure. You want each project that you show to look like it's a chapter from the same book, yes. not a chapter from five different books. Yeah. I mean, you want it all to play. You know, I use the analogy every now and then about pottery barn design. I think I made that up. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell everybody I did make it up. <laughs> okay. I've never heard anybody else say it, but what it meant to me was, you know, when Pottery Barn came out, it's like everybody loved it and they did all cool stuff. And it was kind of like first kind of transitional depot of it's really clean. It's not modern in the sense that you still got like beadboard and trim and stuff like that, yeah. but it was very clean. It was like this really clean intersection of modern and traditional. And so everybody was going to it. And I remember they'd send out the catalogs and even now the catalogs are like 800 pages. And what would happen is every page would be amazing. They'd say like, oh, here's this. And every image they would show, you could buy like 12 things. Yeah. They'd set up a picture of something and it looked amazing. And we used to say, well, it's Pottery Barn design because every single one looks great, but you can't put them all in the same house. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. You could have that one room, but they're not going to give you all the rooms. And so you're kind of messed up. Yeah. And one of my good friends, his wife was like, I mean, she was like embodied restoration hardware. I mean, she haven't had to the point where she had like a little mini tricycle sitting on this roll top desk. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, does a parrot ride that tricycle? You know, a family or heirloom. Had, what, what's yes. happening here? And there were like, be like three old books stacked up with a pair of like Benjamin Franklin spectacles placed on top of it. Nobody in their family wore glasses. I mean, she was just in reality. They were actually glued to the top of you. Didn't know it. You just picked yes. them up. They would... <laughs> yeah. So it was all beautifully lifted. And I was like, this is 100% pottery barn influence right here. I mean, she's like, yeah, yeah, re sure. like, Oh, she sees that image. And she's like, I'm just going to lift that straight from here and put it in my house. Cause I love it. Mm -hmm. Then you'd walk in the next room and you thought you did like a time warp. You're like, this is not the same house. Yeah. That was Ben Franklin's reading studio. And now I'm in Martha Stewart's kitchen. I mean, it's just, it was really weird. Yeah. And so the point about when you design your template, the thing that it does is it makes all the parts seem like they're part of the whole rather than they're all fighting their own, like they're all doing their own story. And mm -hmm. at the end you go, well, it was eight good things. You want them all to build upon the other. And the only yeah. way you can really accomplish that is how you lay it out on the page. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your portfolio should not be a choose your own adventure like we were talking about last yeah. or a couple yeah. of episodes ago, right? Yeah. It should not be that. It should be, here's the pathway. Okay. So the next thing that I have on my list, you know, and it's funny, I was debating whether or not, uh, you know, should I put this on there? Should I not put it on there? And I still feel like I should because I think it matters and I know students still do it. So models, I think you need to include at least one. And what I mean by models is, Specifically, I'd like to see a model that you made, not that you 3D printed and not that you laser cut. Like I'd like to see one that you assembled yourself. And I don't even know that those exist anymore. Well, clearly they do because you posted a picture of one on the website just the other day. Yeah, those are process models for my freshman students. But yeah, it's fine. I'll take it. 
I'll take yeah. it because, because just like those models, there's things that you can learn about those models. When somebody builds a model, sometimes I reference Daniel Anderson's portfolio all the time. There's basswood. She had this patina coppered on there. I mean, like how she chose the materials, what materials she chose, how she cut the pieces of material that she used to build her model. I mean, I couldn't even tell you what that project is, but I can tell you how much I learned about her as a designer and as someone who pays attention to detail mm-hmm. and someone who thinks craft matters. Yeah. The things that I learned about that, that really probably were not part of her thought processes, the, what I would be looking at are profound. Physical models are just another way for me to evaluate your design aesthetic. You have to decide how to present it. You got to decide what base is it sitting on as opposed to it's just sitting on my table. Like you got to design something that it sits on. Is there a site plan? Are you building a model for that? There's so many decisions you have to make when you build a model as opposed to you're in SketchUp and you just go grass under a square. I put my building on it. I paint it with grass. It's not the same thing. And drop some pavement in there. Yeah, it's not the same thing. And just keep drilling the same message in because people should start to be, understand what we're talking about here. What we're evaluating in your portfolio is rarely what you think it is. You might think I'm looking at this model of your project and how it tells the story of your project. I'm looking at your model for what type of human being are you? Like, did you cut it with a sharp knife? Did you choose your palette of materials correctly or interestingly? I still, to this day, remember the first time I saw someone take a piece of cardboard and they pulled off one side of the cardboard. So you were left with like the corrugate. So you had a smooth side, you know, like all corrugate is smooth side with the insulation corrugate in the middle and then another smooth side. Well, the amount of times you could pull one side off and you're left with the corrugate exposed and you could use that as a building material. First time I saw that, I was like, that's amazing. Where'd you buy that? And he's like, I made it, bro. (laughs) He's like, I just spent the time to pull it. Yeah. And you know, and how well do you pull it? There were times when I pulled it and I didn't really clean it up much because I didn't want it to be clean. As opposed to there are times when I like painstakingly remove every extra bit. Yeah. So that every corrugation is perfect and the the horizontals or the verticals or whatever it is. Yes. So those are the things that when you include a model, that's the sort of stuff that people are evaluating who review portfolios. I'm not evaluating whether or not your design was suitable here at that moment. I might be looking at that eventually, Yeah. but your model, you know, if there's a hundred things I can learn from your model, 95 of them don't have anything to do with the project. Yeah. Or your design ability, but more your, your attention to things. Right, exactly. Your attention to the craft, your attention to skill, to details, those kind of things. I would go so far as to say I can even get that from a laser cut model because even then it's parts that have to be glued together and things have to align. So there are things there that I can even pull from that. Again, not as easy as a handmade model for sure. You know what I look at for the laser cut ones? Did they sand off the burn marks? Oh, yeah. Sure. You know what? They almost never do. Eh, I harp on them. The other thing is I'm like, but did you account for it properly? Are your corners either mitered or did you overlap in the right direction? All the joints, or there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, again, even is there too much glue? Is there not enough glue? Do you have a wrong kind of glue and it stains the particle board that you're using? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's still there. It just takes cutting out of it. But other than that, the assembly of it, I can still pull out all of that information. That's the same. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not the grandpa geezer that says, oh, cutting with an X-Acto knife is, you know what? If I could have laser cut my stuff, I would have. Oh yeah, me too, for sure. The calluses (laughs) that I built up on the top of my finger from cutting for hours and hours and hours on end with X-Acto knife. Yeah. 
I would gladly give that up. Or then my trip to the good. emergency room at 3 a.m. in the night where I took a giant chunk off of my finger. Yeah, I could have lived without that. I made it through my entire architecture career without ever cutting myself. Mm. This was actually like my senior year. It was just, I don't know, carelessness at that point because I'm like, yeah, I got it. You know, it's probably cutting way too fast or yeah. something. I don't even remember how. I just remember going to the hospital, the emergency room and being like, mm. It sounds serious. I got some problems. I think I might actually have like stabbed myself in the foot. You know, I moved something in my exacto. It dropped off the, off the table. Yeah. <laughs> stabbed me through yeah. my, in my foot through my shoe. It did happen a couple of times. I don't really count those because if they don't leave a scar, they don't, it doesn't count. 100%. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there's no evidence, what? Yeah. it never happened. Yeah. That's so stupid. <laughs> it didn't leave a scar, bro. It doesn't count. Yeah. Okay. So models, check the box, include at least one. The other thing that I think people should do, and this is the same with like your resume. I think you need to include something in that tells me something beyond you as an architect and maybe more in line with you as a human being. So what that means is include something that isn't a building. And that can be you cast something in concrete. It could be you 3D printed something out that's super cool and it's not a building. It's a lamp, which is what Danielle did. Give me something that's not just straight up architecture, but shows me about you as a person, your creative interests. I remember one of the, and I'm actually, I'm going to reach out to him and see if I can't use some of his images for the post on this. He had a couple of pages dedicated to food. He liked to cook. So as part of his portfolio, he had beautifully and obviously painstakingly plated food that he had prepared and had taken pictures of it. And I went, I learned a lot about that guy just from going, A, he showed me food pictures. That's cool. But it also told me about him as a person and how his personality traits manifest themselves outside of designing a building. Yeah. I can tell lots about the guy that way. I think that's obvious. Include something that isn't a building, which is slightly different, but still as important as I want you to include something that you made by hand. That's also, I think, something that's important. And that can be some of the things we just mentioned. Like, I'd like to see a model that you built, not one that you laser cut. Or I'd like to see you, if you cast something in concrete, I'd like to see an entry on how you did that. And I don't mean like, here's the finished, it's a paperweight. (laughs) You know, here's my concrete paperweight. How'd you do the form work? And I can tell you, when I was at the University of Arkansas, and they have a really interesting way, like all their students basically do the exact same projects. So when you look at their portfolios, they all have the same projects in their portfolios. On one hand, it made it really easy to compare and contrast one student to the other. And you would look at and say, hey, this person's, when they cast their concrete, I can tell that they paid more attention to how they cut the blue foam and how they taped it together. Because I'm looking at the finished product here. Theirs is perfectly flawless. And this person's got like holidays and broken bits on the end. And, you know, you learn stuff about people Mm -hmm. in that process. So if you want to do concrete, do concrete. If you want to take photos, if photography is something that you're passionate about, do that. Print some pictures. I think that would be interesting. Do something that's not just a computer output. I'm on the fence about that. But, I mean, your model fulfills that or something that you've built for school maybe fulfills that category. That's right. There's some overlapping here that's going on for sure. I just want something that's not digital, something that can't be manipulated by pushing pixels around. I just want something like that to tell me a little bit about you, how your process works when you don't have the ability to go back and fake it. Ah, I gotcha. That's why I want something that you've made by hand in there. Okay. 
So the last thing that I wanted to touch on, we've kind of stayed at a fairly high level. We've gone over the ingredients for you to have a successful portfolio. And what I would say, this is what you need to have to fit the criteria, I think, of a perfect portfolio. Final bullet point, which is portfolio format. You might have more opinions about this than I do. I kind of left it at the end. One, because that seems where it makes sense to me. But also, this is not a make or break thing for me. I think that people who create portfolios, they should have one printed out version of their portfolio that they can bring with them on job interviews or career fairs or whatever it's going to be. And then, you know, once you get your job, that portfolio is going to be relegated to a shelf in your apartment for all eternity because nobody cares what you did in college. The norm now seems to be that everybody has their portfolio available for viewing digitally online in some format. And the reason why that is, is digital portfolios sometimes can get kind of large. I know that on average, I tend to see them in like the 50 to 150 megabyte range. And if someone tries to email that to me, one, I don't know that it would go through. At least it wouldn't go through in my office because we, I think we have like 40 meg limits yeah. or attachments. But I just don't want to clog up my system with your giant horse of a digital portfolio. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's a problem, right? Solve it. And yeah. The way you solve it is emailing out a link on a site like Issue, for example. I-S-S-U-U. We get a lot that are on there. Yeah, yeah, there's or, a lot of stuff on there for us. Or a Google Drive. Put it on your Google Drive and give me a link and allow me access to it. You know what? That works fine too. And I have the ability that if I want to make it portable, bring it with me because I want to show it to the other people without sharing your link all over the place, I have the ability to do that. So you need to have a physical manifestation of your portfolio, but it needs to live digitally somewhere. I don't even think that's insightful anymore. I think that's no. just, you have Yeah, to a few years ago when I wrote a post about it, I was like, if you don't come at me with a digital version of your portfolio, you've already lost points because I'm such a techno nerd about that kind yeah. of stuff. But nowadays, yeah. But I also think that in reality, if you're smart enough with it, you can produce a portfolio that can get emailed because yeah. there are settings sure. in InDesign and Acrobat PDF settings that you can get where it's, it's small enough to email. Yeah. I mean, you're making things for screen resolution. You kind of need to make some of these decisions for how you're going to have it physically manifested. Like when you oh, yeah. bring it someplace, how big is it? Is it a booklet? Is it a pamphlet? Is it eight by 10? Like, is it portrait or is it landscape? Is it 11 yeah. by 17? No, I agree. Is it going in a book? Is it going into an actual like old school portfolio, which is what I did mine? Again, those are things I think you decided at the very beginning though. Okay. So I'm going to wrap up our chat about portfolios because we've been at this for about an hour and a half. Not everything's going to make the cut. So yes, your portfolio is important and you will use it at various points during your school and in your early career to leverage it into something you want, presumably a job or could be into school. But just realize that at some point in the early future, you will be embarrassed that you thought your work was so spectacular. When you look back on it, it clearly is not as good as you thought it was. Yeah, it's the best you got. You got to make sure it's the best you got at the time. Yeah, shoot your shot at that moment. Yeah. Don't hang on to it. That's kind of the takeaway. Yeah. You look oh, at yeah. these things and you might appreciate it and have some nostalgia for it, but ideally it's not going to be your best work in that moment because you continue to evolve and grow. Right. I, I still have both of mine though. Mine got dissembled and like, whatever. I don't need to hang on to that garbage. All right. You ready for the hypothetical? Sure. Let's do it. All right. I'm extra prepared for this one. 
No. Okay. So for the listeners, Andrew and I, when we come up with these hypotheticals, we pretty much always know which one's coming. Now, Andrew almost always forgets. Right? No. Yes. No. Because I'll write them down and you're like, I haven't looked. Or or you'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Okay. So it's not that I have forgot. It's just that I don't normally look (laughs) very far ahead of time. It's not getting better. When you tell me what they are, I usually remember. It's when I have to go look at them or if I read them that I forget sometimes. Yeah. So if I tell you, then you know. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Andrew has not heard today's hypothetical. So if he submarines, (laughs) I'll take some of the responsibility because I decided, you know what? We're going to do a little lighthearted one because we've been doing a lot of, you know, who would you kill questions that Andrew has been providing for a while. And we're going to go to one that's a little easier. So if that's not your cup of tea, here's your chance to punt out. All right. So here you go. This week's hypothetical. You eat a fortune cookie only to read the fortune after the fact, which tells you that if you eat this cookie, you will become a world-class martial arts master. What will you do with this new skill and how long before you get in a fight? (laughs) So have you ever been in a fight before? Uh, Yeah, I have. You have? Yeah, not many. But Were you inebriated at the time? Uh, I don't know. That's a yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, probably not. I don't think. Well, yeah, I don't know. No, ish. I mean, there was drinking, but I wasn't like out of my mind or anything. All right. So, so you're, you know, I was tempted to write Kung kung Fu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. This is my dream come true. (laughs) I would eat eight more of those fortune cookies if I could find them just so I could be that awesome. Because I'm telling you, that would be my Keanu Reeves and the Matrix situation right there where I know it and I get to go like, whoa, I know Kung Fu. And I can start like kicking butt now. (laughs) Yeah, so that's that's what it is. You're like, all right, I'm going to go beat people up now. That's that's what I have. But that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to, it'd probably be a long time before I got in a fight. I'd probably just try to do something like go be a stunt person or try to get a different career with it. Is what I would do if I was like a master at it. You wouldn't be an architect who's just a world-class martial artist. You would say, I'm down with this architecture. I'm just no. Well, maybe. I don't know. It just depends. I mean, if I was a master at it and I could go be a stunt person in movies, because that's something that's always intrigued me as well. You'd still get hurt. That's fine. I don't care about getting hurt. (laughs) My leg is broken. That's fine. I think, I mean, the stunt man would be a fun job. I would try to do something like that, but... As far as like how long would it take me to get in a fight? I don't know. There might be some people I would pick out potentially and think, hmm, yeah, I'm going to go find this person now. <laughs> It'd be a little bit vengeful to come back and start, hey, buddy, you remember when this blah, blah, blah? And then just sucker roundhouse just, them yeah, to the face. Man, just annihilate them with my kung fu skills. So when I thought about that, I can't even tell you how I thought of this one. <laughs> my daughter had something to do with it. I have no doubt. But I was thinking, First off, the how long before, if I eat it and I'm now a Kung Fu master, okay, first off, I should say, I've never been in a fight in my life. Yeah. I've come close a few times. I've been like the number two in a handful of potential fights. It's kind of like if your man drops or if his buddies get involved in this mano a mano fight, your job is to step up. Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually, I've gotten in a few, some skirmishes with really turned into just some wrestling is all it turned into. There was no like... Mm squaring off and then somebody's throwing punches and if they did i just dodged it right because like yeah i'm not i'm not a fighter i mean i'm not really a big fighter either like i said i just don't take this the wrong way you look like you could take a punch 
<laughs> I know. I don't. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, in my earlier years, my mother was always worried about me walking around big cities and stuff by myself. I'm like, mom, I'm not the kind of person that people can come approach and start and stuff with typically. I'm okay. It's fine for yeah. me to walk around. I think that's actually where I developed my sense of humor. It was, it was my, if I were to go to prison, I better be funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't think, I think that if you're a world-class martial arts master, don't you kind of, I mean, look, I like to think I'm pretty good as an architect, but I don't know that anyone would go, he's a world-class master of yeah. architect. Yeah, for right? sure. So if I had a different skill set that suddenly was, I was disproportionately better at, mm -hmm. I feel like I'd have to go do that. Yeah. Like I'd have to go. Uh, the thing is, is I'm 52 years old. I'm not a stunt man. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, nobody. I needs guess. That, yeah. Right. I don't know. Cause if you're a master of, I think that implies some new levels of agility. Look, all I know is like, I watch a football game and those guys like jump in the air and catch a football and land on the ground. And I go, Oh God. Like, <laughs> They just land and that looks like that hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? So I don't want someone to like kick me. <laughs> That'd be way worse. Okay. <laughs> just falling looks painful to me now. Oh, that's so bad. Okay. <laughs> right. But it's true. It's totally true. So I don't think stunt man is where I could take this. Okay. I will tell you. And I wrote a post about it. Actually, I'm I, took, crying. I took like a Kung Fu class. That was a karate class in college. And I skipped it. Like I never went. And part of the reason I didn't go is because like day one, this guy showed up and he's like, I will be your sensei. And then he, sensei. he'd like, he had a screw loose. Cause he, <laughs> like right out of the gate, he said, let's just clear this up right away. N no one had asked the question. Yeah. And he's like, you can't kill somebody by pushing their nose bone into their brain and killing them. First, you have to break it, and then you push it into their brain. And I was like, this guy is unhinged. <laughs> this is supposed to be like PE credit. <laughs> and so, so apparently somebody was like, this guy is actually crazy. He's crazy. Yeah. And they got rid of him. And so we had like some 8,000-year-old sensei guy. And he's like, I'm really good. I know all this stuff, but I just write books. I don't practice it. So it's good every now and then to, like, to shake some of the rust loose. And then he proceeded to beat the crap out of everybody in the class. And it didn't matter if you were male or female. The number of girls I saw get dropped by a punch to the chest in the tender parts. Like he didn't care or didn't know. And I was like, I'm not doing this. He was like, I'm surprised people weren't breaking legs. He would demonstrate. He was, I need a volunteer. It was that moment where like everybody would take a step back. And if you were just one, you were the one slow. person that didn't do it. Yeah. And he's like, okay, you come up here. And you knew he was about to like punch you in the throat. I'm about to be in pain. Yeah. He's about to kick you in the crotch, like something <laughs> and not like pulling up. He's like, this is how you do it. And then he would do it to you. And yeah. it, it was terrible. So I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And so, so you want to be that guy? That's who you want to be. I'm just saying I'd be old. <laughs> and obviously he was a master. He was like known across the world. Yeah. It was a big deal. And I thought if I could just like, you know, like sucker punch people, I'd be okay. But as soon as somebody could actually like block that guy and hit him back, he's down. Like, I don't mean, there's no like, Hey, he's 80 and yes, he can punch women in the chest and knee people in the groin really fast and without them being able to do anything. But if somebody didn't know what they were doing, he couldn't take a hit. Like there's no way. 
that guy's bones would turn to dust. There's you no never doubt. know. So I'm in that category. I'm thinking, so what? Now I'm, I'm a world-class martial arts master, and I think the only thing I could do is teach? That sounds super boring. Can I just tell you? <laughs> super boring. Okay. All right, so I go, I don't know what I'd do with that skill. So I'd probably still just be me, and then I'd break it out for like party tricks. I'd do, check out my roundhouse. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just show somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would be making those sounds with my mouth while I did As you it. did it? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And uh, it says, how long before I would get in a fight? Yeah. It wouldn't take me long, right? Like, I don't get in a fight now because I go, well, I don't want to lose. Yeah, I don't want to get beat. <laughs> yeah. I'd, if I knew that I could, like, drop somebody fast, I'd be way more likely to get in a fight. There's no question. Yeah. Right? That's funny. I told my daughter once, when we were talking about, like, the zombie apocalypse, she's like, you're going to go down fast. And I go, no, I wouldn't. You know why? Because I'm ruthless. I've just never had to put it in place. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I sit there and think, I've never been in a fight. So if you're that first person in my life that did <laughs> enough to me that made me get in a fight, yeah. you're getting 52 years of ass whip poured on you. <laughs> of aggression, of stored up aggression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fourth grade when I got that atomic wedgie. Yeah. This one's for you, buddy. You know, you're actually but, probably going to kill that person. Yeah. But, I could have like. Not intentionally, but you were going yes, to kill them. I could have broken arms and legs and I'd still be coming at you. Like I would not be going down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I don't know. Like, I don't think I would go seeking a fight because I knew that I would win, but I definitely wouldn't like. I don't mean just like walking out your front door and taking a left and then going and beating up somebody that you see. I mean, <laughs> well, that's if, what you sound like. What you said is like, it wouldn't take long. It, it wouldn't as soon take as I long. eat this cookie, like I'm walking out of that restaurant into the parking lot and I am whipping ass. <laughs> I would stand up for somebody much more quickly. Like if I saw somebody cut in line and I'd go, hey, you can't cut in line because you know what? I can do something about it. <laughs> and then they say, like, what are you going to do about it? You cut me off in traffic? Oh, it's on. Let's do this. Oh, it, yeah. Oh, that's dangerous for you. So it would be the drive home, essentially, because I've been on the phone with you in the car. So I know <laughs> that's going to go. I'd be driving like a man going, pull over, pull over. <laughs> Yeah, pull over so I can kick your ass. I'm a kung fu master. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that like if I could, like I would. Yeah, I agree. From that standpoint that like if stuff like that were to happen, I would not be backing down anymore like I do. But if I could end a fight in like three punches that I, I know how to strategically place to knock somebody in on their butt, knock them out or whatever. Sure. Why not, man? That's no skin off my teeth. And they're, Thank you they're very done. much. We'll see you next week. Can yeah. you imagine going to something like Bourbon Street in New Orleans? I think it would be impossible yeah. to walk that street and not punch somebody <laughs> in the throat. If you, yeah, for sure. It would absolutely happen. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We would be those guys. It, well, it's, it would be worse if we, get to the, we both ate the cookies and then we both walked down the street. What if we got to fight with each other? Oh, well, we couldn't. It would never cease. Yeah. It would go on forever because we were both masters. So we would be able to defend ourselves as well as attack. That's right. And people just like, it'd make all these viral YouTube videos. They're like. I would eventually win. Because you would, I would run out of stamina before you. Is that your? Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to run out of juice, apparently. Well, I don't know. You maybe Because you're worried about falling on the ground. You might get winded before me. <laughs> this is maybe true, too. I don't know. They're like, the title of the YouTube video would be, Somewhat Younger Man Tries to Beat Up Grandpa. 
who like the most amazing <laughs> grandpa moves ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or we'd have to stop and take breaks and we'd be like, yeah, we'd have to call it. Truth. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, pause. Yeah. Okay. Five minutes. Get Okay. Let's go back to it. <laughs> Since we're parents, we like, we need to rehydrate. And then we move back here. Get a Gatorade. Give me a second. Yeah. Just a couple minutes. We want it to be fair. I need some electrolytes. Can I tell you? I was with a friend of mine once and he was this Italian guy and he was every bit of the stereotype Italian that you can think of. Yeah. I loved him. He was hilarious. Like everything came out of his mouth, made me die laughing, but he wasn't a big guy, but he had that kind of, I will mess you up if it gets to that moment kind of attitude. Down. Yeah. And we were down in deep Ellum here in Dallas and he was going to get a fight with somebody. And all of a sudden he's like, let's do this, let's do this. And he's like, you got my back. And I was like, I don't want to have your back. <laughs> I mean, like, mm, like, does that mean the back from like uh, the car yeah. out in the parking lot? I go, it's just like, the two of us. There's like eight of those guys. And he goes, oh, this won't last long. And I was like, oh my God. He pulls out brass knuckles from his pocket. I'm like, well, those are illegal. Right? First off, you're not supposed to have those. He's like, it's not like I'm telling people. And I was like, oh my God, it's yeah. kind of bad. I'm not advertising it, yo. And I go, you can't do that because if something happens, dude, you're totally going to go to jail. That's like felony kind of stuff. So he puts them back in his yeah. pocket and they're starting to square off. And of course, just like every fight, they both swing like one little punch, but it's more of kind of like a grab punch. And the other dude like grabbed his shirt and a button popped off. That shut the fight down. He's like, oh man, you just ruined my shirt. Why are you going to ruin my shirt? And that was it. That was the end of the fight because a button came off his shirt. And he was so bummed out about his beautiful, of course it was silk, silk shirt with the button popping off that he like forgot that he was supposed to be in a fight with this guy. And this is your friend? Yes. Like his shirt is the one with the button popped yes, off? his shirt, a button popped off his shirt. And it so oh. derailed him from realizing like, you don't stop because your shirt button got popped off. And he didn't want to fight anymore. No, he just was like, he's like, he was so bummed out. He's like, oh man, like I really like this shirt. And now the button's off it. And the other guy's kind of like, what's happening here? <laughs> like, are we doing this? And he just like walked off. That's <laughs> the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing ever. And I was like, this is why fights are stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of friends that, and maybe not even friends. It's more of acquaintances because I try not to be around them anymore. But like when people get a little bit of alcohol in them and they feel like that's what they really want to do. Oh, I don't know if you've ever. Go to get in fights? Yeah. They just get like super aggro. And they're like, well, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I'm like, okay, I can't handle it. I'm out. Yeah. I'm not going to hang out with you anymore if you're drinking because this is not, this is not where I'm at after three beers. Yeah. It's wanting to beat people up. Yeah. I'm wanting to sit down and do nothing. <laughs> I'm wanting to just like, I want to relax. sit down, catch my breath, order a fourth <laughs> beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, something like that. I yeah. I don't have any aggro friends. I never in my life. I mean, I don't have any anymore. I just know. In my younger years, there would be people like that that I would come across. I might be friends with or I was friends with up until that point. We go out and have a few drinks. They get like that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have time for you. Yeah, uh, that's, I don't want to be the person that's always having your back when you're going to start picking fights with six other dudes. That's not for me. I'm, I'm going to pass. So I can't even think any of my friends that would really probably want to get in a fight now. We just like, man, eh, yeah, it's not worth whatever. it. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 Grant, I think any 45 to, an older year old person that wants to get in fights. It's got some different issues anyway. Yeah. Well, so I question your actual ability to become a stunt man. <laughs> Why? Well, first off, that skill set doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you being a martial arts master. Sure. 
your ability to fall out of a building or down a flight of stairs has nothing to do with you being a Kung Fu master. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what my stunt man is doing. I mean, there's stunt people that all they do is the fights in the movies or they like help direct the fights or they choreograph the fights or they do all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not necessarily like that I'm ping. I'm not the person that's like getting beat up and falling eight stories down onto the air well, I mattress. I think they call those people like stunt coordinators. Coordinators. Yeah, choreographers. Right. They're not stunt. Sure. Well, whatever. Same difference. Uh, um, I would do both. <laughs> You're like, you need me to fall out of the car? I can do that too while I'm choreographing this. Uh, well, no, I'm going to show you how to, f- I'm going to choreograph it while I do it, which is much how I do most That's of my things, ridiculous. right? I don't think that, like, if you're thinking about putting little Jill or little Johnny in Kung Fu class, they're not going to teach him how to follow moving cars. That's not part of the No, they're not. But that's fine. I'm not talking about doing that. I'm talking about doing the fight stuff. (laughs) You're you're just, you're missing the boat completely, man. You're a choreographer. That's what you want to do. Let's just call it, let's call it what it is. You're basically teaching them how to fight dance. I was about to go. Oh, so I'm a dance choreographer. Yes. Just happens to be with punches yes. and kicks. Martial artist. I think it's a better use than party tricks. What can I say? It's probably some true. If I go, hey, put this bottle on your head, I can roundhouse kick it off expertly. I think people want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, wouldn't you? I want. Yeah, I would want to oh see it. Oh my god. Everybody would want to, but see I'm it. not going to be the person to volunteer. I'm going to be the person like holding the camera, holding my phone. Yeah, because the expectation is I'm going to kick somebody in the face, or not even yeah. that high. Maybe their waist, because like the other thing, I'm not limber. But see, that would come with it. I mean, if you are a martial arts expert, then that automatically implies that you are like super flexible and limber. Yes, of course, absolutely. So, but they may not certain think it. Things that I could. Now, I don't know that people would look at you, Andrew, and go, "He could do a full splits." Oh, yeah, no. That would, I don't think anybody's ever looked at me and said no, that. that would be a surprise. Ever. But you could do it, just like I could roundhouse kick a bottle off someone's head. God, <laughs> maybe that'd be a side hustle. You know, my party trick would be is I do the Jean-Claude Van Damme time cop thing where he hops up and does the splits on two counters in the kitchen, right? Like one leg is on one counter and one leg is on the other. And like I think the floor on fire or something underneath him. I remember the splits and I remember thinking, that's unnecessary. <laughs> like you could have just jumped onto one side of the counter onto one counter yeah i know right like yeah you didn't have to jump straight up in the middle and do, do the, the splits do the splits to hold yourself up but that's impressive yeah right that's the that's the party trick part of it yeah okay i'm gonna need you to set this floor on fire <laughs> and and i'm gonna avoid getting burned i'm gonna do that next time i'm at your house where the bar is i'm gonna hop up and put one on one side of the bar and one on the other but, side. You, but you don't actually have world-class martial arts skills <laughs> I think you would tear. There's some things down there that you would absolutely tear. <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't happen. I mean, it'd be great. You should video it. It would it'd go viral for sure. I, absolutely. I would record that. Fail of the year for sure. But yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say that's the end of this week's hypothetical. And I'm going to say that that's the end of our portfolio episode. Thank you for being with us today for episode 60, The Perfect Portfolio. We would also like to thank Peterson for their gracious support of this episode, as well as our media partners, Building Design and Construction. 
If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get crisply folded new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment. And I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star, this is how you do it rating. Be sure to visit the original life of an architect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. And be sure to stick around to the very end because if there are any bloopers, that's where you're going to find them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Here's this shank I made. <laughs> what kind of what kind of stonework did you make in prison? Yeah. You got some license plates? Do not count the text because I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'll read labels, right? You may need to start over. Okay. I had some it's some weird lag, and you kind of like did that weird like hang up. So just I did that in real life. Oh well, then never mind. My oh. bad. Go ahead. You couldn't print photos. On your yeah, own? No. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Come on. Yeah, I had people. to go, like, pay to get them printed. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. had to have a master painter actually paint what I described because there weren't even cameras when I was born. You need to kind of throw your hat in one ring or the other. So I go, throw your hat in the digital. So I would say, you know, the whatever the numbers are, 1920 by 1200 or whatever that dimension yeah. is. <laughs> you you yeah. can laugh. I, I don't need to save brain space for that. I know. Go ahead. Yeah. So, well, let's hear it. You're calling me out. What is it? No, Tell no, no, I'm not. Go ahead. No, Just no, keep going. Look, people can't see the video. You're <laughs> giggling because I didn't say the number right. So 1920 see. by 1280. Yeah, but there anyway. you go. Boy, you better hope that's right. I know, I better. <laughs> <laughs>